Hi, my name is Andre, and you're listening to Code Podcast. This is a bonus episode where you will hear the full unabridged interview with Matthias Boos. Matthias is the person behind WebTorrent, and he has done a lot of work in BitTorrent space uh, for Node.js. He's also one of the creators and currently chief technical lead of Debt project. It's a protocol for peer-to-peer data exchange. If you're enjoying the episode and if you're getting the value from the podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon by going to codepodcast.com slash Patreon. And to all the current Patreons that are supporting the show, thank you so much. Right, without further ado, I bring you Matthias Boos. So, can you maybe start with introducing yourself and what you're working on right now? Yeah, sure. So, uh, my name is Matthias Boos. Um, I'm a Danish Node.js developer that uh, primarily works on peer-to-peer systems. Um, in the past, I've done a lot of work with uh, BitTorrent. That's was kind of my uh, entry into the peer-to-peer world and distributed systems. Uh, I wrote a bunch of libraries for Node.js for BitTorrent that enabled um, uh, streaming BitTorrent applications. So uh, that was a lot of work on top of that where I did a bunch of applications to stream video and we did some cool stuff with like streaming Linux installs and 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 real-time applications like that it was really cool uh, so that kind of got me hooked in peer-to-peer because it uh, kind of showed that you can do all these crazy things with data without having to host all data and and hosting data is is very expensive and and, and cumbersome so that was very exciting for me uh, so that was probably like four or five years ago and I've been down to peer-to-peer rabbit hole ever since, uh, going deeper and deeper. So right now I'm primarily working on uh, the the dead project and um, uh, mainly the I'm the main tech guy in, in the dead project, trying to uh, build um, basic tech like BitTorrent and fix all the things we think should be fixed in a in, in a modern sense. Uh, BitTorrent is still really good and, and really stable and really good for what it does, but we want to try to focus more today on how we can ba- make p 2 p systems that are more real-time, that are updatable, that are built for like the web, um, that are versioned, that are uh, good for a number of things, not just sharing files, but also just sharing data and data streams in general. And um, so that's what I'm, I'm primarily working on today, among with among many, many, many other things in the Node.js ecosystem. I'm involved in a ton of projects, but this is where my passion is. Uh, so that's me. Right. And it's interesting you've mentioned uh, BitTorrent. And what are, do you think, what are the main flaws of the protocol in relation to, you know, modern usage such as, you know, web and right. et cetera? So, uh, <clears throat> I mean, saying flaws is like, I wouldn't call it flaws. I would more call it BitTorrent was designed in a, in a, it was designed like, what is it, 15 years ago, probably like now? I think it was around 2006. I could be mistaken. Um, it's more, you know, the, 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 the protocol, itself is actually a really basic peer-to-peer protocol in a good way. I mean, basic in a good way, meaning that most people can that are a little bit familiar with, with network systems can sit down and, and read 
the the specs and implement one. Uh, and and I, it's it's basic enough so you can get something going in a weekend, which is pretty incredible. Like not a full client, but it, like enough that you're like, whoa, this is cool, right? which has got me hooked. Um, but you know the 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 simplicity simplicity of it also comes with some some uh, some small scaling issues. There's like uh, it's not really it's actually not really good if you put in a ton of data because it does a thing where uh, technically it divides all you know all the data you put into into chunks into a thousand chunks basically and those are these are the chunks shared on the network. So that means if you share a a megabyte of network, you can you can download a kilobyte chunks from peers, which is fine. That's like um, that's what you normally get on the internet. If you put in a, a hundred megabytes, it's usually a, a hundred kilobytes, which is still fine. But then if you start putting in a gigabyte, it's a, it's a megabyte and downloading a megabyte of data from one person can be kind of slow even today. And if you put in a terabyte, it's all of a sudden a, a gigabyte, which is like very uh, unrealistic to download in one go. Uh, that's like the minimum block of transaction in, in BitTorrent. So the scaling kind of has, uh, like the data scale has, has kind of, you know, outgrown BitTorrent scale. There's like uh, things you can do to improve it and it's fine, uh, it still works. Um, so so just the sheer scale of data has kind of outgrown. It's also, it's, it's extremely static, the protocol, which means that it's really, really good for sharing static data, um, but it's not, it's, it's not very good at sharing dynamic data, which means that you can publish a, a torrent, but you can't really publish an update to a torrent. That's just going to be a new torrent. Um, and um, they're going to be completely different from the network's point of view. So it's not very good for sharing of, um, updates of data, which I would say is extremely essential in the real-time world we live in today. You know, we want to, you know, everything is real-time. We want to have real-time access to data uh, and, uh, and also in our peer-to-peer. -peer. So, you know, if you want to share static data and the static data is in the gigabytes, which is, you know, most data sets, BitTorrent is still a really good candidate and it's extremely proven and extremely deployed. Uh, but if you want to go about, uh, uh, beyond that or start talking about real-time use cases, uh, we need to uh, start thinking of improvements to the protocol, which is what we do. Right. And um, so how would you introduce uh, uh, that in, in that sense, that context? Right. So... So basically, you know, from from my work with um, with BitTorrent, I got a pretty fundamental knowledge about how everything worked, uh, and it's it's funny enough that's also backed by Merkle trees. Um, right. um, it's just a very uh, non-conventional implementation of a Merkle tree, but that's a whole different podcast. Um, <laughs> no, so you know, I started that with BitTorrent started, you know being more and more frustrated that I couldn't build like things like a chat application on BitTorrent. I couldn't build things like Git on BitTorrent. Um, so along with my friend, um, uh, Max Orton, uh, we started looking into like building distributed version control instead uh, in a peer-to-peer -peer fashion. So uh, that had like big file scale. So like kind of like Git with big file scale. And that's kind of how the, the that project evolved originally. And then we uh, evolved it. It's, that was like three or four years ago also. So it's been through many iterations since then. But so just taking like, you know, trying to take the, what we think could be improved in BitTorrent and, and uh, starting from scratch and, and, and uh, improving it from the ground up, basically. Uh, I can go into some technical detail if you prefer. Yeah, um, let's go into technical stuff. Um, so, <clears throat> so uh, if you know how a uh, Merkle tree works, basically, you know, it's like, Usually, Merkle trees just allow you to get a bunch of data out of order and then verify it if you know the the root hash of a Merkle tree. So, right. 
uh, you can you know get a bunch of data and then you can get some hashes and then you can kind of reconstruct a path to the root and then you can check that oh uh, this piece of data matches a leaf in this tree it's like a very common algorithm it's really powerful um, that's that's basically what BitTorrent does but with a very shallow tree the, the tree in BitTorrent actually only has uh, leaves and and the root is just a parent of all the leaves directly so it's kind of like uh, it's not very uh, uh, there's not many branches there's only one branch. Um, and the way it works in BitTorrent is that you basically get this entire tree up front. That's the torrent file. So if you ever had a torrent file that just contains the Merkle tree. Um, so that doesn't scale when, when you start putting in a ton of data. And a ton of data, I mean, like, what if you had a, a, a trillion pieces of data? Then it's like your torrent file is going to be huge because the hash is usually 32 bytes these days. Um, so 32 bytes times a trillion is a, a lot of data. Um, so what immediately we started doing is like we need to have ways of, of syncing this Merkle tree without exchanging the entire thing up front. Uh, so that was like a main main thing we had in the in the protocol in, in the beginning. So that's like given that you somehow trust the, the root of the Merkle tree, we have a protocol where you just incrementally share just the pieces of the, the Merkle tree you need to verify a piece of data. That's actually much simpler than it sounds. You can do that in a in one round trip in a in a network where uh, you have a you have two peers and one peer has all, let's just simplicity say that one peer has all the data and the other peer is requesting a piece of data, but it, it, it trusts the root of the Merkle tree. Then the, the, the peer with all the data will just send the piece, missing piece and then the hashes needed to reconstruct the root and then the other peer will verify it. And it just kind of does this on demand and then you can do some tricks to make sure you, you don't send the same hashes twice. So it's really simple stuff basically, but it, that, that's like a simple way to, to fix the, the, the scaling issue with having a lot of pieces of data right so the main uh, premise is that you don't have to have all the data to verify that mm -hmm. you know if you need just a piece you can get this piece and right. you can get all the hashes of other pieces and then you can verify that actually it corresponds to to the right root. right uh, and that's just mostly like you know taking existing literature and like tweaking a little bit and then uh, applying it in a pragmatic context so it's not that's not that's not much innovation there it's just like actually doing it basically right mm -hmm. um and uh, the cool thing is that that means that every time you get a piece of data, at most, you're going to get um, login uh, hashes to verify it from the peer because it's it's a it's a binary uh, tree. So that's not a login is usually really small. Uh, so it's not a lot of hashes you need on every round trip. So it's, it's really it's it's very uh, efficient and you probably so little overhead, you probably won't even notice it. So that kind of solves the now we can kind of like scale up to any any um, any amount of pieces of data we want uh, efficiently. Um, then the other cool thing we do is instead of just trusting the, instead of expecting the the root of the Merkle tree to be trusted, we just trust a key pair instead. Because and then we use this uh, the person with the private key of this key pair uh, just continuously signs the roots of the Merkle tree as they change as you add more data to the Merkle tree. Um, and that's how we can kind of do real-time updates because then if you just trust the key parents that um, then when you when you get a new piece of data if there's a new root in the merkle tree the the this the peer that's sending the data will also just send a signature for the for the um, for the new root and then you can verify that the new root is verified and then and then continuously doing the same thing all right so, so that 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 allows basically uh, to not have the um let's just say the the link 
be changed all the time, right? Exactly. So then it's like, and that's the, then it's technically then it's the same swarm, which means that peers that had an old version of the data can still share data with peers that have an updated version of the data because it's the same, it's the same key space basically, which is really powerful. That's that's one of the main things we we missing from from BitTorrent and actually also most other peer to peer systems out there today, uh, because this makes it very efficient and almost zero cost to publish updates. Um, which is super powerful. You never want to have a real-time system be expensive to update, basically, because you know then people who won't update it, then they'll think twice about updating. We want to encourage people to just put in a ton of data and keep putting in a ton of data. All right. So it's also kind of the the way you organize um, chunks compared to BitTorrent seems more clo closer to the Git um, infrastructure. Is that so? Uh, I would say it's a combination. Um, so one of the things, in my opinion, that BitTorrent did really well and that we kind of lost along the way in, in newer systems is that BitTorrent has a really simple way of addressing data, which means it just it just uses simple a simple numeric system to address data. So it just you know it takes if you wanted to share a terabyte of data, it just chunks that terabyte of data into some 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 chunks, and then it uh, it takes the first chunk and calls that one zero, the next one one two, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and that's how you address them. You say, I want to have chunk one, I want to have chunk two, I want to have chunk zero. So the really powerful thing about this uh, this kind of addressing is that it's extremely efficient to pack a bunch of numbers. So if you wanted, if I wanted to send you a digest of which chunks I had, let's say I don't have them all, um, you can pack these chunks if they're just simple numbers into a, what's called a bit field. And a bit field is just like you know you have a string of bits, and a, a one bit means that you have the corresponding chunk. Uh, and a zero bit means that you don't have it. And bits are, you know, bits are small. It's just there's uh, eight eight bits in a byte. Um, so usually this this bit feels the tiny. You can even do compression schemes on top of them. Um, so when you have a system where you can address things in that way, uh, you can extremely efficiently um, exchange in one round trip. Usually, what 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 data do I have? What data do you have? And then we can figure out offline uh, without talking to each other. Uh, which pieces of data we are going to request to like get in sync. So that's super powerful. And that's something we kind of missed in new systems where we tend to, on the network level today, in my opinion, do too much addressing by hashes, um, uh, which is fine in, a, in an application, but in a network, it's very inefficient because hashes are pretty big um, in this. So it's like one bit versus a 32 byte hash. So what we do in, uh, in that is we keep that simple addressing. So um, the first chunk you put in is zero. The next chunk you put in is is is, is one, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but then we still have the Merck tree to bag it, so you can still get a you can still get a, a hash address uh, if you want to make sure that the content is is verifiable. If you, if you know what I mean. So that's kind of like Git style, where you know every 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 commit has a hash that is like the ID of the commit. Uh, so you kind of get both. Right. In and in which uh, situations any of those. I used so basically when I request the data, I probably request just the the numbers, right? Mm -hmm. The IDs, right? And then and then when I want to verify actually something, then I I will have to request hashes, right? Yeah. So you know, so when when you when exchanging data, you just use the numbers to kind of get the data, and then you use the hashes to verify the data as it's coming in. Um, and then if I wanted, if you if you were worried that the data. Uh, after a while on your disk got stale because somebody edited it or or something like that, uh, then you can use the hash again, um, a hash address to kind of verify that the Merkle tree looks correctly. 
Um, so it's kind of like it's this checksum. Um, and you can also you can use it to you can use a hash to kind of version your data if that makes sense. Where you say I want to get the version corresponding to this hash, which means that you know basically the root of the Merkle tree. And so speaking about versioning, is that something that uh, that supports out of the box? This is something I couldn't understand from them. Right, <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, our website needs a little bit of work. Um, no, yeah. So we're very big on versioning. So we support versioning out of the box. And so our our default versioning scheme. So the DAD protocol itself is um, fundamentally, it consists of these, uh, we call them feeds of data. So a feed of data is just what I described there, like a, you know, a, a thing where you put in a, a piece of data and the first piece is zero, then the next piece is one, two, three. That's like the basic um, abstraction. It's, we call it a feed or it's also called an append-only lock um, because you, it's a series of data you can only append to. And um, this is like the fundamental data structure that is verified and versioned, which means that you can always uh, you can always get a null value because no you can always just get a value by this uh, sequence number like the one two three and that's basically a version if the, if that makes sense because it's, ne it's never it's never you can never overwrite data so if you get the piece of data stored at index zero it's always the same piece of data. <clears throat> we use this like basic data structure. And this is the thing that's actually backed by Merkle trees um, and some crypto to do the, the public key signing. We use this data structure to kind of build more user-friendly things on top. So you can use you can use a, a data structure like this to build a file system on top, which is what we do in the dead project. And that's what we expose to the user. So the user sees that instead of the user having to deal with these like numbers, they just deal with file names and a normal file system as they normally would. And you can kind of extract that down to work on a on a data structure that just um, supports addressing by numbers using some data structures. Right. So maybe at this point it's useful if we go from the process of sharing something, you know, end to end. Let's just say I have a couple of files on my disk and I want to create uh, that link. What what would happen uh, under the hood? Yeah, that's a really good idea. Um, so you have a bunch of files. Um, then you let's say just for simplicity you, you don't have a dead yet so what you do is you 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 start by creating a dead that first means like you create this key pair uh, and the, the public key of the key pair is the identity of your of your dead because that's the thing that's going to sign your merkle trees in a second and so you, you immediately get that out before adding any data because it's immediately a valid dead it's just an empty dead then um then uh then a, then a node process starts crawling your files in your folder and like you know which files are in here and then it um it 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 just goes through them in uh in in some order it doesn't really matter i think we do uh, breath first but again it doesn't matter and then uh and then uh, uh reads out the files uh, and then what it does is it takes the content of the files and then it 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 it, it chunks the files and you can actually do any kind of chunking you want. I think the default is just it tries to make chunks around 32 kilobytes, but it doesn't really matter. It supports variable size chunks. Um, and then it takes takes each of these chunks of data and puts it in a in a feed like I described. So take you know, take the first pieces of data out of file, put it in a feed that's going to add it to the to internal Merkle tree. Then you take the next piece of data that's going to be a sequence number one. The first one was zero, and then you take the next piece of data until the file is done. Then when the file is done, you have another feed where you put in the file name and a little bit of data structure so you can find it efficiently. And then you write down, this was file, let's say the file was called hello world. 
text that you write down. This is hello world.txt. It starts in, at index zero in this uh, in this uh, Merkle tree feed, and it ends at, at index three because there was three blocks of it. All right, so we have basically two data structures at this point. We have the, the Merkle tree with the content, with version yeah. content. Yeah. And we have a separate structure with, which has all the file names. And... Yeah, so we call that we call one, we call the one with the content the content feed, and we call the one with the file names the metadata feed, because it's basically metadata about the content. All right. Is there something else in the metadata feed except for permissions and file names, the usual stuff? No, so so the 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 metadata is basically the file name and then all the Unix data that you know if you're ever done anything with file system. So it's like you know M time, C time, all the permissions, um, uh, and there's a, there's a, there's I think there's like ten different Unix properties you can set that are all kind of obscure, but we just add them for for completeness. Like you can set a device ID and stuff like that. Right. Okay. Uh, um, and then we have another mode right now that's experimental where uh, multiple people can like collaborate on one, but let's not get into that. It's a little bit more complicated. Um, and then also, in addition to the metadata, it writes a little um, embedded data structure that's called a TRI, T-R-I-E, uh, which is just used uh, when consuming it to kind of find files efficiently. So we add a little bit of data structure that allows you to very efficiently file find a file name in this huge uh, metadata feed without having to read the entire thing um, when consuming it, which is very useful because you want to, like, let's say you have a, a billion files in there, you don't want to scan through all of the billion files to find the one you're looking for. And what uh, is what is the structure? How does it work? Just the, the basic. It's called it's called a it's called a try. It's it's a whole podcast to describe it, I think. Uh, <laughs> but it's 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 called it's what's called an hash array map try or hamt h a m t. Uh, and it's uh, it's it's basically if you're familiar with the term uh, uh, a prefix tr try, um, it's very confusingly named in English because it's T R I E and some people pronounce it tree, but it's not a tree as in T R E E. <laughs> so I, I say try. I say try, uh, but it's just it's it's a very commonly used search data structure that allows you to index things efficiently. Um, but key mostly value. text, right? It's like... Uh, yeah, it's key value. So it's like a text key to, to a value. And, that, you know, a file name is text key. The, the thing we want to index is the file name. Right, got it. Uh, um, I'll share some links. Maybe you can put them on, on the on the podcast uh, about how all this works. Um, so we embed, embedded a little bit of that. And then you basically just take the next file and you do the same treatment. So you only ever end up with these two feed so the content feed will at the end contain uh, contain all your files concatenated and the metadata feed will contain a list of all your the files added right do you also what do you do with empty folders for instance is it also like a file a structure or is it uh... so so we support both uh you can just you can just add them as a metadata entry with like empty content um but you can also just choose not to add them uh, because the the file system still works all right. um, it's, it's not needed. I think normally we actually just don't add them because they don't add much value, to be honest, unless they have special permissions or something like that, that you know, you explicitly said. Right. So with all those data structures, uh, is there something else in terms of data, like a, the, that is part of uh, that? So this is the, this is the, this is basically the main ones, uh, because that, you know, we also tried to, to not do too many things at once. Um, so you have these two data structures in there and then there's a, then there's a you know network replication protocol that allows you to exchange this data efficiently, like I tried to describe earlier, um, almost BitTorrent style. So 
I'd say a really, really interesting thing about this, these data structures is that in the, in the dead sense, when you consume them, you can, let's say I share a billion files, for example, like a huge amount of files, like a, um, a, a data set of, of, of something with a lot of entries. Um, then the, the dead protocol allows each of these feeds to be replicated uh, what we call sparsely, which means that you can replicate them without replicating the entire thing. You can just be like, I want to get this piece of data and this piece of data and nothing else. Um, so the interesting thing about the data structures is that it allows you to to kind of say, I want to just pick this file uh, by file name, and I only want to get that one and nothing else. And you can actually replicate that in a peer-to-peer -peer fashion where you exchange a few messages and then you only get the uh, that one file name, and then you only sync that content of that one file name. So even though you have a dead containing like billions of files, you can very efficiently only sync one file, only p parts of one file. So that's a really powerful metric. Um, right. But I, but I thought BitTorrent also kind of allowed that. Yeah. So or... yeah. That, so yes. Yeah, so that's one of the really cool things about BitTorrent. Uh, that's also what right. I meant by right. BitTorrent is still cool. Uh, but this allows this allows you to do that in a real time data set where you keep updating it. Oh right. Yeah. That's that's very cool. So that's what I meant by BitTorrent is still like really valid and that's like hasn't outlived how hasn't outlived its usage. It's just we wanna, you know, continue to improve it by adding these like modern features. All right. And so how how does the network discovery and kind of the the construction of the network happen? Right. Yes. So um so you know the, the data set is identified by this uh, key pair, the 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 uh, the public key of the, the original key pair. Uh, and the public key is just a 32-byte identifier that kind of, it's we use uh, elliptic curve keys. We use uh, EC25519 if there's technical listeners. Um, so we take this public key. This public key is like the identity of your data set because that's the one that keeps signing the Merkle tree. Um, and here we actually do a really interesting thing, I think. Um, so instead of just using, so when you have a, network you kind of need like some sort of topic to describe your data so other people can find you you need something to share so other people can 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 find it so we use the public key for that so let's say you, you let's say you made a huge data set and you get this public key it would get printed out to to your terminal or in your program as a hex string and you would send it to me kind of like a magnet link in BitTorrent if you ever seen those mm -hmm. um and i would put that into my client so the interesting thing is the way they found each other is that um they there's a, a built-in DHT and also there's some DNS servers we use, so we have redundant discovery. So the what is getting announced on the DHT and the DNS servers is actually not this public key, but a a hash derived from the public key. So we take we take the public key and we derive another hash and uh, using an HMAC. Um, and and you announce that to the DHT with your IP saying I'm I'm I'm. I'm sharing this data set, um, mm -hmm. and I do the same thing. And then you know we both we both ask the DHT, we find each other, we we connect, uh, we try to do some hole punching magic here, so we can connect even though we're behind uh, firewalls, which is really important in peer-to-peer -peer systems. Um, and um, then when we connect, we do a a small crypto handshake to kind of prove that we actually had the original public key also because we only know right now that we have the hash of the public key. So we do a crypto handshake to, to prove that we have the, 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 
the public key behind the scenes, which means that if you're if you're trying to if you're trying to fake that you had the key, basically, if you sent me your key of your data set, but you hadn't sent it to anybody else, we want to make try to make sure that nobody in the middle can intercept the data. So after proving this, we do a, a, a internet encrypted exchange of the data uh, that kind of relies on us having that public key exchange, um, and then we exchange the data. So the the that basically forms what's called a capability system, where the where the public key acts as a capability, um, with, uh, meaning that you have to have the public key to get the data. So that's uh, that's really powerful, uh, I think, because it's like there's zero UX cost to this, like there's zero user cost to this, because the user has to get the link anyway. But it means that you can, in a somewhat private context, if if you if you try to keep your link secure, then you know that. You can send data securely. So, if you wanted to just back up a bunch of data to a server and you just control the key, then you can make sure that nobody in the middle is intercepting your data, which is not something you cannot trust in BitTorrent, for example. In BitTorrent, anybody can get your data by just crawling the discovery networks um, and like trying to connect to people. That's how a lot of people get get in trouble with BitTorrent for sharing illegal content because there's a bunch of lawyers just crawling. The discovery networks uh, and, and seeing what's being shared. So it's a very, it's not perfect privacy, but it's 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 pretty okay. And it's like I said, there's no cost to doing it. So we we really uh, think this is a really good idea. Right. And so, is there a, is there any part of the internal workflow that we forgot? So we we've covered the the initial sharing, the creating of the debt, and then kind of the the building of the network. Right, so I think I think uh, something that, that's really interesting. Just, I think this kind of covers, you know, in very broad terms, uh, the uh, how how things are working. I think something that's really interesting is that we tried to build this as a modular stack. And what I mean by modular is that we tried to make every piece of the system as independent as possible from the other pieces. So at the bottom, we just have have this uh, append-only log or feed abstraction that just allows you to insert pieces of data. Uh, and we originally built this with like we wanted to share files, but you can actually put in any kind of data that fits into this abstraction and um, and share it on the dead network. And a ton of people build a, a bunch of very interesting things on top of this abstraction that had nothing to do with files, uh, which is I think is like a really positive sign. So if you think about things like a chat application, a chat application is basically just like a feed of messages being appended and appended and appended and appended, right? Um, so that's a really cool everyday application you can build on top of an abstraction like that uh, that has nothing to do with files. Uh, and that's real time. Um, there's another one that's a... Yeah, I guess all kinds of APIs, right? Like yeah. REST APIs and real time WebSocket APIs. Exactly, like it's basically just, if you have something that's a message API and you wanna make it persistent, then you can use an abstraction like this. Uh, and then you get all the integrity checks from the Merkle trees for free. Which is really powerful, right? Um, is there any kind of uh, interesting application that you have seen or that is, I don't know, worth sharing? Uh, I think you know the 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 most mature one I've seen. There's a, there's a ton of different applications of ver various maturity. Like uh, you know, it, this, it's it's actually surprisingly easy to get started building these things because we have if you write Node.js applications because. It's just some some modules and like twenty lines of code. You're going, you you will get going. Um, I think the interesting ones right now is there's a 
there's a browser application that's being built on top of this called Beaker Browser. Um, that's that's a fully uh, featured browser like Chrome that supports browsing uh, uh, the dead links um, as normal websites, which is a really interesting idea because the kind of like takes this real time idea and puts it in a web context where people can just sit there and and, and publish websites uh, by having files in a folder and they just get automatically updated uh, on the web uh, and with built-in uh, versioning so you can kind of check out how a, a website looks over time, which is a very powerful idea, I think. Um, and that's a very finished product and very like polished in a way that a lot of projects, the stage that many projects don't get to. So it's actually something, I actually use the browser as my normal day browser. It's, it's that good. It's, it's, it's really impressive. Um, then there's a project, oh yeah. Yeah, um, just one question about Beaker. Um, mm -hmm. I, I love the project, I love the browser. Um, I'm wondering, can the web developer build actually something that is uh, private or semi-private in experience or personal, mm -hmm. you know? Can, can you build an authentication system? Can you build, um, you know, something personalized based on, on that in that sense? So it uh, depends on what you mean by personalized. So there's like different different levels of person personalization, I think. So one one is um, it's just um, can you build a debt that only you know x amount of people can access, but they all see the same thing. Uh, that's like a one of the things we're working on making better right now. Uh, we're adding uh, a mode to it where you can kind of say only replicate my debt with these people and these are people being identified by some sort of crypto identity, like a key pair. Uh, that's not something you can do right now, but something we're very eager to get out um, that we're hacking on at the moment, because that's really powerful um, in terms of like, you know, then you can have a company just having a private debt and you can invite people and you can um, kick people out um, as they come and go. So, and then there's the other one level of um, personalization, which is um, kind of like somebody running a website where people have accounts, um, not just their personal accounts, I guess. Uh, and you can actually do that on bigger, on bigger websites. It's just, you have to think about it a little bit differently than we're used to because it's peer to peer. So, you know, we're, we're used to thinking about accounts as something that lives on another person's computer. Like when you log into Facebook, you're logging into a Facebook server and all your data lives there. In a peer-to-peer -peer world, you have to think about it very differently as in all the data lives on your computer and your control of your computer and everything the service provides you is something you download and run on your own data. Um, uh, and that's how, that, that's, the, that's the change in like systems. Um, so basically a, a site like that becomes more of a skin on your data than it's is than it's than anything else. I actually think that's a really good model because that also means that we get back to owning our data and and like things like the Facebook data leaks uh, become much much harder to have in practice because all the data is distributed uh, by yourself. But at the same time, it's it's kind of harder to do aggregations, right? Uh, for instance, if you do if you want to collect data from I don't know all over the world and then present it to a small group of people, it makes it harder. But I guess it's the purpose. Yeah, I mean, you can still do that. Uh, it's just much harder and it's much more um, opt-in, which I think is a good thing. I think the, the problem today with all the centralization is that all the aggregation is not opt-in. It's just more like 
uh, you're trusting somebody won't do it, but you know, over and over and over again, it has shown that people just do whatever they want uh, behind the scenes. So you can still build systems like that where you say, I can run an aggregator on the P2P network. And the way that would work is I would tell you to send, send me your data and sending here means that I would run a, a P2P socket uh, where you can send data to me and I would add it to my data set basically. And I would write this data, this data set came from also publish the data sets if people wanted to verify the aggregations assuming it's it's, it's public data uh, so it's much more opt-in in that sense uh, but like the, the the main the main mechanics of of, uh, of sharing are much more decentralized which is a good thing right right uh, yeah that makes sense um what kind of applications um do you think people can start building with that or like what are what are the frontiers let's just say what what, what is the infrastructure layer maybe that needs to be present in order for the protocol to take off in your mind yeah so i mean the the i, I say this a lot when i do conference talks about peer-to-peer -peer systems the, the main thing with a peer-to-peer -peer system is that it's not very fun if you're the only peer like peer-to-peer kind of kind of implies two people um otherwise it's very centralized just on yourself so you know any peer-to-peer -peer system to to be a success needs peers um and bootstrapping any system is always the hardest part of any, anything uh, we've been really lucky to actually have pretty good bootstrapping now there's actually uh, a really vibrant ecosystem of people building things and using it uh, which uh, it's events it you know at the stage where it's getting better and better every day and there's a lot of, there's a lot of sites on beaker uh, you know a lot meaning probably a thousand sites uh, so still in the early days but you know it's at that community level where people are excited about and making things and making better things every day. Uh, the infrastructure is kind of there. Um, it's getting better. There's bugs like there isn't any system, but you know, uh, the protocol is pretty stable, uh, which is something you need for people to build things on top. So it's at the stage now where if you download something like Beaker, you can actually, uh, without knowing much about peer-to-peer, -peer, you can make a peer-to-peer -peer website and in a couple of, of minutes uh, following their intro guide and, and get up and running. Um, something we're trying to improve a lot is, um, you know, peer-to-peer -peer is really good if you're online, if you're sharing something, but if you're offline, it's, it's kind of sucky because that usually means that your site gets taken down. It's like both the power and the, both the advantage and disadvantage of peer-to-peer. Of, uh, -peer. Um, so, uh, we try to solve this by running, uh, super, super peers or peers that you can you can tell to archive your data if they want to, um, so they, that it stays, stays up. It kind of like, you know, just like peers to have a ton of data. Um, and we have a couple of those running, and uh, but you know, that can always get better. But it's pretty good already. What I was thinking about is, what about kind of incentives on all the sides? You know, incentives for people that are sharing the data that they have nothing to do with. Uh, incentives for people building stuff in a peer-to-peer fashion because it's mm -hmm. kind of it's shared usually with 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 everyone or maybe with a with a limited group. But it's very hard to build something that is you know partially shared and maybe the the rest is behind uh, a paywall or something. You mean like, like you mean like business models and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. So one side is, you know, um, are peers incentivized to, or what, what would be the mechanics to incentivize peers to store data? And the other one is how do you build business models? Is it even possible or is it kind of right. not even looking into that direction? So actually the incentivization question is interesting. Um, I actually, I have a very radical approach uh, that um, 
Bitcoin has shown over and over again that you can get very, very far with having no incentives. Uh, Bitcoin is huge. It's been like bigger than the internet for a while. There's zero incentive in Bitcoin other than it's fun to share. Not saying that's the perfect system, but I'm saying like I'm not saying like people take incentivization too seriously. You can get extremely far without any incentive models. Um, so uh, and we're actually we're at the stage now where we have more storage capacity uh, being offered to us than we have things to store because you know libraries, universities actually have massive amounts of data they're willing to to offer up for people archiving interesting things. There's things like the Internet Archive that have massive amounts of data. Um, that has not been that big of an issue to find um, uh, people willing to back up data. It's more having the tools that allows them to easily back it up, to be honest. Um, so like having the tools that says, hey, I'm super interested in uh, space data, so I'm willing to offer up some space data for free because I have a huge disk. I mean, most of us have a huge disk. Uh, that's actually pretty pretty powerful. So I I'm, I'm not a big believer in having to incentivize that part. Uh, I am a big believer, however, in in enabling business models on the on the P2P web because without without any kind of commercialization, it's it's, it's not gonna take off as a as a competitor to you know to the normal web uh, because you know it's not gonna sustain itself beyond a small ecosystem. Um, but we have to rethink uh, business model. You're completely right about that because. Um, the big centralized data hubs just won't exist, I think, the, the, uh, in, in PHP. I'm sure if somebody would try to build them, but I don't think I don't think they would be successful. There is, however, a bunch of very easy things you can do to make business on the P2P web. There is things like just straight up making uh, commodity services like offering to, to um, share websites for people um, for money, offering to like keep up time. That's, that's the simple ones that we always tell people about. There's also a huge opportunity for a service economy, I think, on the P2P web where you offer up, offer up P2P systems that, that provide some sort of service like like you see on the normal web, like that could be anything from a, a service you can send your um, accounting data to and it indexes your accounting data into uh, a format easily digestible that you can download and stuff like that. So there's a huge opportunity for, for services, uh, but without having centralized data in the same sense we've been used to. Right. What are some of the challenges that are, you're working right now in on in the protocol itself? So um, the that protocol has been, you know, uh, it's pretty good at what it's been doing for a while. There was some 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 uh, scaling things we found as people have been using it that we've been fixing. Uh, but the main thing that's been missing is that the system has always been a, a publishing system for one person, meaning that uh, there's no, there used to be only one person that could publish the dead, and then only that person could write to it and, and publish updates to it, which is fine. It's like simple and easy to understand, and you don't get into issues like conflict resolution and stuff like that. But you know, it's also collaboration. I think is one of the huge features of the of a P2P system. If you can get collaboration in there, it, it gets massively uh, better because then you know, many, again, more people are more fun than one person. Um, so we've been working hard on adding um, what we call multi-writer to, to that, which means that a system where you can invite other people to, to participate in your dad and, um, and add more data to it. Uh, so I can start off a data set or a website and I can invite you to help out and then I can actually uh, step out and, and give it over to you and now it's your uh, chance of uh, moving it forward, et cetera, et cetera. So 
that's uh, uh, something I've been working on personally for the last year. And three weeks ago, it went out in alpha, and it's about to go out in a, in a beta, and will probably go out in the protocol pretty soon. So that's super exciting. I'm very excited to see what people will build with this uh, feature. Sounds, sounds, sounds amazing. And usually with the, this kind of systems, the first question that comes up, what about conflicts resolution? And right. what, what, which route did you take? So uh, our system, it's, it's, the, it's the same kind of data structure underneath. Uh, so it's the same, you know, nothing has changed underneath with the uh, pen-only logs. It's just, there's just more of them for, there's one for every peer. The conflict resolution is actually, um, it's like one of those hardest problems in, in distributed computing uh, because there's no good there's no good solution. It's all about trade-offs. So the solution solution we do is we is that at a, a low level in the protocol, we actually don't make any decisions about conflicts. We allow them to exist. So if if there's a if two people are, are trying to update this, the same key at the same time. It, the system will, will will notify the user consuming the API that there is two values and it's up to them to pick the one. And then we 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 uh, <clears throat> we publish a bunch of strategies uh, as modules that you can you can use to 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 pick the one you want. Uh, normally for example if you trust the people you're collaborating with remember this is the only only the people you explicitly invite to the to the dead can write to it. So if you trust people, then you probably would something like a m time strategy would probably be fine. Like you know, the symbol like timestamp. For, for other people, it would be who is the most experienced writer, the person A or person two. Um, so uh, the system kind of like is flexible and allows you to 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 um, to to, to um, put in any strategy you want. Is it decided on the client level, or is it then published to the network as the final truth somehow? It's designed that it's designed on the client level. So the right. so um, the client picks the the one it thinks is the is the best one, and then uh, if the client then the client can then choose to merge these two, if there's two or two or more, into a into a, uh, a non-conflicted version also. And then then if 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 that's pushed to the network, then all people will only see that one value. Uh, so it's basically a, it's a CRDT uh, that is like user configurable in terms of how it resolves its conflicts, which I think is the least like opinionated strategy. And then people can build very opinionated things on top of it, which is like probably what you want. All right. So like looking forward for Google Docs peer-to-peer. Uh, -peer. Yeah, exactly. So I hope, I'm hoping somebody will build that. That's like that's definitely uh, uh, something you could do on top of this for sure. Um, also, just final note on the conflict resolution. I'm also my personal like down the line best solution would be that um, if you if you're mimicking something like a file system and there's a conflict, there would just be two files appearing in your file system. One called Matthias's copy and one called other writer's copy, and then uh, and then you could rename it back to the original. I think that's kind of like what Dropbox does also. Um, I actually think that's a pretty good model for for users to understand. So we probably end up with something in the future, but right now it's just user pluggable and we'll shift with some some default strategy they can override. All right, sounds great. Sounds amazing. So what kind of uh, stuff um, do you think people can take away from the dead protocol itself and the design of the uh, the dead system to when they build their own software? Like, is there something that people can use from dead in their software basically? 
Yeah, so if you're building Node.js applications, uh, the dead protocol is extremely modular, meaning that um, any component that's independent and sticking out into an independent module that has nothing to do with everything else that you can compose into your own thing. So uh, so that itself is basically just a, a bunch of modules combined um, into the peer-to-peer -peer system, which is pretty cool. So if you just look through the dependency stack, there's a bunch of really interesting stuff in there that you can use for all kinds of things. I would, I would, uh, I say this always, um, if you're building your own peer-to-peer -peer thing, always remember that peer-to-peer -peer is much, much, much harder than you think to implement. Um, so always go for the simplest solution instead of the complicated solution, even if the simplest solution on paper is worse than the complicated one, because building these things and building them right is just so incredibly hard that you always want to have simplicity. That's what BitTorrent got right, to be honest. Can you give an example of, you know, where could you use parts of uh, the dead stack instead of the whole thing? Our discovery network, the, the thing that the network uses to discover is a module by itself. So that's just a module where you can kind of say, you know, like service discovery, if you're running service discovery on your server uh, as a company, and you want to have a way of finding out where servers are running, uh, given a name, uh, you can use our service stack for that. Um, the service stack itself is combined by a DNS stack and a, a DHT stack. So if you're just looking for a DHT client, that's really proven and good. We have that in there also. Uh, we also do multicast DNS, which is this thing that, you know, you used to find uh, printers on your network and um, your Apple TV or Chromecast and your TV. Um, that's also in there. That's a really used component and a ton of stuff like that. We also have a, there's a, there's a module I really love um, that's called um, Merkle tree stream, which is just a note module that, that takes a note stream and converts it, uh, generates a Merkle tree on the fly, um, generic Merkle tree, stuff like that. Uh, so all that is really, really good, powerful stuff that's all independent and really well tested, um, both like with normal tests, but also just in practice. Nice. And all of this could be found on GitHub, I guess. And... Yeah, I mean, all of this can be found with like various difficulties, but uh, most of it, if you just if you just look at the, you know, the package JSON of that and then just start scrolling and uh, on my GitHub and uh, the dev project's GitHub, um, it's just a, uh, there's a treasure trove of good stuff there, I think. That's probably the, the real value of the project, to be honest. I'm trying to catch some someone from IPFS. Yeah, I mean, all these all these projects are very similar once you get down to it. It's just a matter of like, you know, all projects take different trade-offs. Like I would say IPFS is really, really good. Probably one of the best one, if not the best one at sharing um, static data right now. Like it's really good at that. Um, we take a bunch of trade-offs to, to do the, the real-time things really fast so you know uh and uh and, and blockchain systems are really good at uh providing consensus if you want to have like you know really strong consensus meaning that you want to make sure that something is always in the same state which i don't think is that important as people think uh, but that's like my personal opinion but um you know that's all that's that's one of the things people always forget about peer-to-peer -peer systems is that peer-to-peer -peer systems because of the loss of computing uh always have to take trade-offs. You can't do everything at once. So there's like room for having a lot of projects at once uh, and the projects should all be focused because when they start not being focused, that means that they're lying about what they're doing probably because they can't do everything at once. <laughs> I think Git actually, Git is, uh, you mentioned Git. Git is interesting. I think Git is what got a lot of people, uh, including myself into 
distributed system because this data Git is you know Git always describes itself as distributed version control, but we all I mean everybody uses this as centralized version control because people just mostly sync with GitHub or GitLab. Um, so we ne we never really discovered the decentralized part of it, but once you start digging into the the science of Git, that's where you like untangle all these Merkle tree things and like get amazed. Um, and there's so much good, 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 and interesting tech in there that's super inspiring. That I, you know, I think actually that inspired a, a bunch of people in this space to get right. started. I agree. Why do you think Git didn't take off as a truly peer-to-peer -peer system? That's uh, <clears throat> it's interesting. I was just talking to my friend about this the other day. Uh, I mean, I think part of it is that uh, the Git stack is very um, uh, C-based, meaning that it's like you know. Uh, it's really hard to use it outside of Git. Uh, you have to use libgit, but it's you know it's not something that you can just spin up in your browser as a JavaScript project or a Go project or something like that. It's like you have to have a lot of, of contextual knowledge about how Git works to start using it. So like already there, it cuts off a huge developer base that would try to take it in crazy directions. Um, there's no uh, there's no built-in uh, network logic into Git. And other than SSH, and SSH is kind of centralized, so it's really hard for users just to try using it in a distributed fashion, um, for better and worse. The <clears throat> like, I mean, you, you can't just sit on your computer and be like, get pulled from the world, and then if somebody close to you has the data, there's also not, uh, there's not a, you know, the defaults in Git are very insecure in terms of a peer-to-peer -peer because you know you have to explicitly enable signed commits and stuff like that, so. There's no guarantee that people won't just mess with your data. Even though it's verified, they can still mess with it on the fly. Uh, so it's like it's almost there. I don't think I don't. I mean, I'm not saying this is actually not. I wouldn't even say that this is a disadvantage for Git because Git doesn't Git doesn't care about these things. Git just cares about being able to work with any server, uh, not just a centralized one. Um, so it's more that you know Git itself is. I would probably say it's more federated than it's. Um, Decentralized um, people would probably disagree with that, but that's how I would say it. Meaning that you know it, it can work against a bunch of different centralized hubs. It's not bound to one. Uh, but the you know the, the the dream that we would sit and and pull from each other on a local network just doesn't happen because of silly things like uh, not being able to remember people's IPs and uh, firewalls. Right. Yeah, I agree. It's kind of uh, the use case was just from the very beginning, I guess. Uh, different that it wasn't it wasn't built to be a decentralized uh, you know uh, file sharing th system it was kind of built as yeah. a version control system which you know you you share uh, code with only a limited number of peers it's not for everyone and so on and so forth but i'm sure if git was if it, if git was built today and with a npm mindset where like all the components would have been npm modules i'm sure like there would have been 50 very interesting peer-to-peer -peer modules being spun out of that in terms of like Merkle trees and stuff like that, that people could use to build really interesting systems uh, in the peer-to-peer. So you think it's also kind of a cultural uh, thing that we were just not mature enough in that sense at the time? Yeah, I think it's uh, cultural uh, and also like, you know, timing. We had different problems back then. Um, and... Um, you know, peer-to-peers, I would say, you know, also peer-to-peers only now starting to get mature in terms of infrastructure. 
uh, not just like sharing files, but actually as a replacement for existing infrastructure. Uh, we are only now at that at that point, uh, so it wouldn't. I don't think it would have succeeded back then because of you know just limited networking capabilities and stuff like that. Thank you so much for for the interview. It was a really good podcast. I'm really glad you're, you're looking into peer-to-peer -peer things. I'm always a fan of that.